My name is Christian Butterfield. I'm a former defense contractor turned writer and editor. After spending a few years overseas, I became fascinated with global conflict. Why does it happen? How does it unfold? And what can we do to mitigate the impacts? I don't pretend to have all the answers. But what I do know is that the first step in navigating the subject is making an honest attempt to understand the conflicts of the world. I'll try my best to that end, and I hope you'll join me. This is International War Report. Hey guys, welcome to episode three of the show. Today we're going to talk about the conflict in Myanmar. Uh, but before I give you today's update of what's been going on uh, in the past week, I'll touch on a few of the things that have developed over the past few weeks. They've been in the reports that have been published on internationalwarreport.com, and uh, it'll probably show up in uh, episodes to come, as you'll learn. It doesn't seem like resolution is close in this conflict, so um, this will definitely um, be part of the recurring report for some time. But before we reach the point where I can just give you continuous updates, I, I think it's important to lay the foundation how did we get here? Uh, what is the conflict? Who are the actors involved? Why are they fighting? We'll explore that before we get into, um, into what's going on today. Just so you guys know, you can read the new issue of the report at internationalwarreport.com. Uh, there is a tab up, a new tab on the site that says support us. That will bring you directly to the Patreon page. It was brought to my attention that uh, you could not find the Patreon page uh, just by looking for it. So I created a, a tab on the website, and uh, it'll bring you... Uh, there's a big button in the middle of the screen. If you click on the tab, it says become a member uh, on Patreon. And $2 a month, you guys can support the show. I'll give you a shout-out on uh, this podcast. And, uh, yeah, I'd appreciate your support. Guys, let's not waste any time. Let's dive right into Myanmar. So, for anybody that doesn't know, Myanmar is a nation in Southeast Asia, west of Thailand, east of India, and south of China. The nation is in the middle of a civil war right now that encompasses the entire country. And it's between the ruling military government and pretty much everybody else. There are, you know, a great number of people in, um, in Myanmar that are just trying to live a normal life under the rule of this military government. But uh, when I say that the fight is between the military government and everybody else. What I mean is that the war has been sort of a unifying force for a lot of different political groups and ethnic groups in the country. They have banded together in this armed resistance against the military government. And in every state of Myanmar, across the country, the military government is engaged in heavy combat with the people, with a, a popular armed resistance. Before I dive into what's going on today, let's explore how we reached this point. And in order to really get a grip on it, we have to rewind the clock all the way to World War II. We could probably go even further back. I know the history purists will... Um, will give me shit for only going back to, to World War II. You know, they tell me you have to go back to the 1800s when the British colonized um, Myanmar and, and called it Burma. Um, but we're going to, for our purposes, World War II will work, so we'll start there. Approaching World War II, 
there's a man with a dream of independence from the British. His name is Aung San. And during World War II, he sees an opportunity. The Japanese come and occupy Burma. They defeat the British, push the Allies out of Burma. And Aung San is appointed deputy leader of the puppet government that the Japanese put in place. And he begins to talk to the Japanese about Burmese independence. But those talks soon stall out because of Japan's situation in the war. And Aung San sees the writing on the walls. The Japanese are losing the war. They will soon be out of Burma. And that's what happens. The Japanese actually send Aung San and his forces to fight the British. They go out to the front and just integrate into the British forces and start fighting the Japanese. And uh, because of Aung San's actions in that and his um, leadership, his political influence, he is appointed the Burmese leader of the government under a re-established British rule. So the British defeat the Japanese in, in Burma, re-establish their government, and appoint Aung San as the Burmese leader, but he still answers to the British. Over the next few years following World War II, Aung San works with the British on a plan for Burmese independence. And eventually they agree. In 1947, all the different parties in Burma, including Aung San's anti-fascist party, agree to uh, a 10-year union. So in 1947, they come to an agreement with the British. They say, hey, within one year, we will be independent from the British. And for the next 10 years, we will be the union of Burma. And after 10 years, the different ethnic states that make up the union will have the option to secede because there are a ton of different ethnic groups in Myanmar. Many of them want their own independent state. Many of them control their own territory. So they agree to a 10-year plan and Burma is set to become independent within one year. Following that agreement, Burma holds elections to decide the parliament for the newly independent state. So once independence is achieved, they'll have a new body of government. They need to run elections before independence happens to know, hey, on that day, the, this is the government that steps into power. So in 1947, Burma holds elections. Aung San leads the anti-fascist party. He wins an overwhelming majority in uh, the parliament, of seats in parliament. Uh, a few other ethnic groups are represented. I believe the communists even had, the communist party had some seats as well. And Aung San, in, uh, it becomes clear that Aung San will become the prime minister once independence is achieved. He brings different ethnic minority leaders into his cabinet and they are planning for the future ahead, a new direction for an independent Burma. Well, in the summer of 1947, just three months after the elections, Aung San was meeting with members of the transitional government that uh, currently held power and worked with Aung San with the British to try and secure independence. And he was meeting with members of his newly formed cabinet for the future government. So all Burmese political leaders in this room. A jeep carrying four gunmen storms the gates of the minister's building, which is the house of the government. Uh, at the time, it was in the capital city of Rangoon. Uh, four gunmen hop out of this jeep. They're carrying British and American machine guns. They go up to the cabinet room where the meeting is taking place and empty their magazines into the room. In total, they killed nine people, 
Aung San was among those killed, as were other ethnic and political leaders in Myanmar. Or I guess I should say Burma, because it was Burma at the time. This was a huge blow to the coming chapter for the nation. Uh, after the killings take place, you saw, it's a man's name, you saw, uh, he was the leader of the previous government under British colonial rule, and he was a political rival of Aung San. He was arrested by the British for his role in the, um, in the assassinations. And he was apparently the ringleader. He orchestrated it. He ordered it. Uh, he was arrested by the British. Burma was granted independence while he was in custody. And then the independent nation of the Union of Burma executed him uh, for Aung San's assassination. Burma achieves independence shortly after Aung San's assassination and a statesman named Yu Nu steps into the prime minister role. He sees Burma through this initial chapter of independence. But all is not well in an independent Burma. There is a massive communist uprising supported by the Chinese, and they are at war with the Burmese armed forces. There are ethnic groups that never agreed to the terms of independence who are also warring with the newly formed government. And this puts pressure on the economy, along with mismanagement in this new government. So the economy is failing. By the late 50s, you knew has a lot of problems on his hands because people are starting to respond to the economy as well. So you have a popular uprising, university students, social unrest, in addition to the civil wars, um, it's not looking good. So you knew in the late 50s, hands over government power to the army chief of staff, Nay Win, and he requests a temporary martial government to reestablish calm and control and security in Burma. Nguyen operates a martial government until 1960 when the military government oversees elections and Yu Nu is re-elected as prime minister. So now it's 1960. We're two years past the mark date of the 10-year plan, but Nguyen and the military were leading the government from 1958 to 1960. So now, you news government, uh, the democratically elected government in 1960, is going to revisit the 10-year agreement and thinking that they're going to make good on Aung San's agreement made back in the 40s, that they are going to give the union and different states and different ethnic groups in the union the option to secede. Well, Nguyen and the Burmese military really hate that idea. Uh, it allows the states in Myanmar, once they're their own nations, to forge their own alliances. And one of the Burmese military's big fears is that some of them will cozy up to the United States and to the British. Uh, they will have this quasi- colony state all over again or this quasi-imperialism taking place right on their borders uh, and the Burmese military loses a ton of its capacity a ton of its influence a ton of its funding and they have to live with the idea that foreign governments that might be adversarial to their way of doing things and that are way more powerful than them may soon be right on their doorstep. So they don't let this happen. Nguyen launches a coup in 1962 and overthrows the democratically elected government. And he cites in his justification for the coup the threat of the union breaking up, 
but also just the ongoing and seemingly augmented unrest in the country. Uh, the communists need to be dealt with. The ethnic independence movements need to be dealt with. So they take power in 1962, and that leads to a military dictatorship that lasts until the late 80s. And under Nguyen's military government, Burma becomes one of the poorest countries in the world. As soon as he took power in 1962, he arrested all of his political opponents. He nationalized every industry in the country, so the military had control over every industry. And soon after taking power, he consolidates uh, governance into his own hands. So Nguyen leads the legislator, the judiciary, and the executive. And him and his small military council run every aspect of life in Myanmar. They get rid of the freedom of press. They uh, put into place a political system that is a one-party system, but they have some kind of excuse of uh, legitimate government, some kind of claim to a legitimate government. And uh, he drives Myanmar, Burma at the time, into the ground. So by 1988, Burma is one of the poorest nations on the planet. They're still absolutely racked with civil war that just got worse under Nguyen's leadership. And the people have had enough. They want mass reform. They want an end to the dictatorship. They want democracy reestablished in Burma. So an uprising takes place. It's called the Quadruple Eight Uprising, or the People Power Uprising is another term for it. It occurs all across the country. It's actually not dissimilar to what we're seeing in Iran today. It starts with protests on universities. It grows into these um, citywide and then statewide movements. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people uh, take to the streets. And in Burma in the 80s, they do it for a month and a half straight, and they just get bigger and bigger every day. I mean, shoulder to shoulder packed, marching through the streets, uh, calling for democracy, calling for um, mass reform. And, uh, and just like in Iran, violence breaks out between um, security forces and protesters in some instances. And uh, reportedly thousands of civilians were killed during this quadruple eight uprising in 1988 in Burma. The uprising lasts for a month and a half until a faction in the Burmese military sees the need for action, and they launch a violent coup against Nguyen and the government in power. So uh, General Saul Mong takes power. This is when the name changes from Burma to Myanmar. Burma is just a name given to the colony by the British. Myanmar is a rough English translation of the traditional name of the nation by its own people. So Myanmar is how you say the traditional name in English. So Hmong forms a temporary military government and they plan to hold elections in 1990. Well, during the uprising, a political party in Myanmar becomes very popular and comes to prominence. It's called the National League for Democracy. And it's led by Aung San's daughter. Remember, Aung San is the independence, uh, you know, the grandfather of Burmese independence. His daughter leads the National League for Democracy, who really leads the uprising and the calls for democracy leads a nonviolent resistance during that uprising. 
His daughter's name is Aung San Suu Kyi. If that name sounds familiar, it's because she is a current political leader in Myanmar. I mean, as of today, as of right now, she is in prison. Um, we'll get to that in a little bit. In 1991, Aung San Suu Kyi is awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for her nonviolent resistance and championing of democracy in Myanmar. And democracy was achieved. Elections did occur in 1990 in Myanmar. Uh, the National League for Democracy won a landslide victory. Aung San Suu Kyi was supposed to take the role as prime minister. And finally, once again, we were supposed to have this full circle moment and democracy was supposed to be reestablished in Myanmar with Aung San's daughter taking the role of prime minister. But again, just as that government is supposed to take its place and begin work at re rewriting the constitution and developing a new approach to life in a democratic Myanmar, the conflicting forces in Myanmar intervene and prevent it from happening. Hmong's military government nullified the election results. They're totally dissatisfied with the overwhelming victory that uh, Aung San Suu Kyi achieves. I don't think that they were uh, expecting such dominance from the National League for Democracy in those elections. They probably overestimated their control over those elections. It totally blew up in their face. They nullified the election. They place Aung San Suu Kyi under house arrest and accuse her of being a threat to public peace. The international community is outraged, condemns Hmong's military government for totally disregarding the elections. Uh, and the military government uses the same justifications that Ne Win and his military government used for their coup in 1962. They say that the union is in danger, that peace and security in Myanmar are at risk. And so they nullify the election, arrest Aung San Suu Kyi, arrest different democratic champions in Myanmar, and once again, consolidate power, establish military rule in Myanmar. And that brings us all the way into the late 2000 knots. Uh, in 2008, 2010, that time period, uh, some changes in the government start to take place. One part of me thinks that the military government started to make changes in order to legitimize control in the eyes of the international community. So they wanted to essentially retry what they did in the 90s, uh, reintroduce democracy, but this time have a tighter control over the results. And that is exactly what happens. They hold elections in 2010. The elections are largely seen as fraudulent. The National League for Democracy doesn't even participate. They boycott it because they know that they're sham elections. And the political wing of the military wins uh, an overwhelming majority in this new government that the military wants to establish. Another part of me thinks that these changes that start to take place are an organic movement from the ruling authorities, uh, an organic movement towards real democracy because they realize that the prosperous future of Myanmar relies on a more cooperative approach, a less unilateral form of governance. And that's evident in the changes that take place in the years following. So once the new government takes power, the government that the military puts in place, 
Once they take power, they rewrite the Constitution, which introduces very clear processes for an ongoing democracy in Myanmar. They also release a lot of political prisoners uh, across the country, including Aung San Suu Kyi. They release her from house arrest, and she is allowed to continue and carry on her political life, which is exactly what she does. In 2012, there are by-elections in Myanmar to fill vacancies that popped up in Parliament. The National League for Democracy participates in those by-elections, and they win 43 out of 45 available seats. In 2015, there are general elections. So, again, this is a... a, a you know, a real positive change that took place under the government that resulted from sham elections is that they hold honest general elections in 2015, and the National League for Democracy wins a huge majority in the parliament. And Aung San Suu Kyi, though she is not legally allowed to take up the role of president or prime minister, uh, a new role is carved out for her. I, I think it's called something like state counselor. And uh, it just means that she's the leader of the government. It's just a semantics difference. She's the leader of the National League for Democracy. Uh, they control the parliament. They are the government in charge. She's the leader. They can't call her president. They can't call her prime minister. They call her state counselor. I want to point out that although Aung San Suu Kyi and the National League for Democracy have a lot of power politically now, uh, the military retains a lot of control over certain areas. So for instance, they are in control of themselves. They don't answer to Aung San Suu Kyi or any other political body. Uh, there are certain ministries in the government, certain committees that the military uh, is in control of. So Aung San Suu Kyi and the National League for Democracy have to perform this balancing act of operating a functional government, trying to reform as much as they can without totally running afoul of the military, who has a long history of, whenever they please, overthrowing the current government and taking power. In Aung San Suu Kyi's first uh, cycle in power, which is from 2015 to 2020, uh, things didn't really go as planned. I mean, Around the world, there was so much hope uh, for the daughter of Aung San to finally have her place in the government and for democracy to flourish in Myanmar. The economy struggled and declined over the next few years. Foreign investment didn't increase like people thought it would. It actually decreased because of mismanagement in the new government, because of a total lack of uh, productivity, uh, progress on domestic economic policy, and, and especially how it relates to uh, foreign investment. So the economy is struggling in Aung San Suu Kyi's government. She also has the problem of the Rohingya crisis, which is a military operation being conducted against uh, a Muslim minority in western Myanmar called the Rohingya. Uh, for a number of reasons that I won't get into in this episode, in 2016-2017, the military ramps up its operations against the Rohingya, and in fact, I can't even say that they're operations. They start committing mass rape, 
They kill tens of thousands of civilians. They burn down entire villages. They displace hundreds of thousands of people into Bangladesh. And Aung San Suu Kyi is in a really tough position during this crisis because she is not in control of the armed forces. Aung San Suu Kyi can't really do much to stop them, even if she wanted to. And if she tried, or even if she came out and vehemently objected to their activity, there's a chance that they would do what they always do and run a coup against her, overthrow the government, uh, put her back in prison or house arrest, and, and that would be that. So she says nothing about the Rohingya crisis, but you have to remember, this is the champion of human rights and democracy in Myanmar, saying nothing about genocide occurring in the country that she is the leader of. So that draws internal criticism as well as criticism from the international community. Uh, but again, I don't know how she could have navigated that correctly. Uh, maybe she genuinely doesn't care. I don't know. I think she did go on record and deny that genocide and ethnic cleansing were happening. But I, I genuinely think that was probably a self-preservation tactic. She didn't want to draw the attention of the military. So she's trying to uh, play that balancing act, trying to at the same time make peace with the ethnic minority separatist groups that have been warring with the government of Myanmar since the 60s. Um, and that brings us to the 2020 election. So things are not really going as planned. Myanmar is not the picture of progress everybody thought it would be. Brings us to the 2020 elections. COVID has broken out across the world. It's making the situation in Myanmar uh, even more dire. But they hold elections nonetheless. They, I think, view that they have to. Not only are they constitutionally bound, but the path forward for improving things in Myanmar is I believe in the eyes of the National League for Democracy to keep performing well in elections and to march further and further along uh, down the path of establishing a supermajority in the parliament so they can really start making big changes. In 2019, Aung San Suu Kyi tried to rewrite the constitution to really affect meaningful change in Myanmar, couldn't do it because the NLD didn't have enough of a majority in parliament. So 2020 comes around, and I, I think they're viewing it as, you know, if we really want to get this done and stop this middle ground balancing act that we have to do, we need to go through with these elections. We need to establish a supermajority in the parliament and, uh, and really start to make changes in the country. 2020 elections take place. The National League for Democracy wins a huge majority in the parliament. They smash the political wing of the military in these elections. And it's looking like their plan is going to work. Like they could, in 2021, when the results are ratified and the um, seats change in parliament, that real change could start to take place. In 2021, the day before the election results were going to take effect and the seats of parliament were going to change, the military launches a coup, overthrows the government, arrests Aung San Suu Kyi, throws her in prison, arrests leaders of the National League for Democracy, throws them in prison, arrests their political opponents, the rest of them, and 
establishes a military government in Myanmar. In an explanation that may sound familiar, the military in Myanmar claims that the 2020 elections are illegal, that uh, not only was fraud committed, but that the laws surrounding COVID-19 were violated. So the election had to be overturned. They had to take power. The commander-in-chief um, and leader of the military, his name is Minong Lai. He becomes the de facto dictator, and right now, today, is the de facto leader in Myanmar. He leads the military junta that uh, currently controls Myanmar. He has since named himself prime minister. Um, for my own purposes, I'll just refer to him. Uh, by his name and as the leader of the junta. Um, I don't think it's helpful. In fact, I think it's confusing to refer to him as prime minister because uh, the parliament that was elected in 2020 no longer exists. I don't know what he's the prime minister of. Um, it's a totally illegitimate government that they've put in place. And in another move that might sound familiar to those that conduct coups, he has announced elections for next year. Now, those are largely expected to be sham elections based on what he's done uh, following his assumption of power, which is to arrest all of his political opponents, to totally dismantle the most popular political party in the country, being the National League for Democracy. And um, there is really no option for free and fair elections as things currently stand. I mean, the nation is totally engulfed in all-out civil war, the brutality and violence of which I believe ranks it among one of the worst conflicts in the world right now. But it wasn't like that right off the bat. So when Minong Lai takes power, February 2021, uh, protests break out in the country. And there are nonviolent demonstrations against the coup. Some of them turn to civil disobedience to what some may consider riots. Um, and pretty immediately, the junta cracks down on these demonstrations. Uh, and eventually it reaches the point where they are responding to demonstrations with live ammunition. They're killing uh, demonstrators at these protests. They are conducting mass arrests. They devolve into looting. The junta forces start looting around the country and conducting small-scale military operations against uh, protesters and people linked to the opposition. Um, and the coup and the military's subsequent behavior is condemned... Uh, by most countries on the planet. Russia and China are the two largest supporters of the military junta, big surprise. They support the junta so they can continue to sell arms to them and um, profit from that exchange. India has claimed to support the pro-democratic forces, but is very closely associated to the junta they meet with them on occasion. They uh, show up to uh, military parades. So India pointing the finger with the right hand, shaking hands with the left. And the nations in Southeast Asia are also, they seem to be conflicted, I guess you could say. Uh, Thailand expressed support initially for the junta. The Association of Southeast Asian Nations 
is the block that makes up the Southeast Asia Peninsula. They have rejected the junta's participation in the association. Uh, they are not welcome to their meetings. They don't conduct business uh, with the association. But individual countries have expressed their support for the junta. So a bit conflicted in the region of Southeast Asia, but by and large, the world did condemn initially and continues to condemn the junta and their activities. As the protest continued through 2021, uh, pro-democratic forces began to get organized and a government in exile was formed uh, in late 2021 called the National Unity Government. This is the pro-democratic government and the rightful rulers of the country in their eyes. The National Unity Government begins to support the increase in resistance activity. And eventually what that results in is the formation of a paramilitary group called the People's Defense Force. The People's Defense Force is a coalition of armed resistance groups from across Myanmar fighting for the common cause of defeating the junta and protecting the people. Ultimately, they want to reestablish democracy. They want to see the national unity government in charge of Myanmar. So in early 2022, the People's Defense Force gets organized with the help of the National Unity Government, and they start launching military operations against the junta. And that sets the stage for the conflict as it progresses today. You have the PDF and its allies, which are the ethnic separatist groups that have been fighting with the government since the 60s. They are also, at this point, very much anti-Junta. Uh, and then on the other side, you have a few loyalist militias and uh, the Myanmar Armed Forces. That brings me to what's been happening on the ground over the course of the past few weeks. Uh, and I'm going to start in talking about this by looking at a town called Mobai. Mobai is a small town northwest of the city of Loy Ka in south-central Myanmar. Loy Ka is the capital city of Kaya State. Just northwest across the state border in Shan State, you have uh, Mobai. Mobai was under resistance fighter control. The junta has firm control over Loy Ka. And in September, they launch an advance on Mobai. As they're entering the town of Mobai, the junta forces establish an outpost in a Catholic church, thinking that the local ethnic fighters that uh, control Mobai won't attack them if they are garrisoned inside of this Catholic church. They were mistaken. Resistance fighters brought the fight right to them as soon as they started setting up in this Catholic church, and days of fierce fighting in the town of Mobai followed. Resistance fighters reported that Junta forces were calling in artillery, they were calling in airstrikes, Eventually, that ethnic uh, defense force, it was a Karini Nationalities Defense Force, they claimed to have wiped out an entire column of Junta infantry. I believe the number I saw was somewhere north of 20 soldiers. Uh, I saw photos of some of the Junta casualties. I know that um, they did incur some, some losses, but I would imagine that their forces withdrew 
after sustaining those casualties uh, and went back to Loikaw and got their shit together. And apparently they did just that. A week later, Junta forces come back into Mobai. They shell the shit out of it first. They roll in with tanks and even more infantry, and they take the town of Mobai. And the separatist fighters, the PDF fighters, PDF allies, were forced back into uh, the forested areas around Mobai. Now, the Junta knowing that, in late October, they start striking the area around Loikaw and Mobai with artillery, and just recently, in the past two weeks, they hit a house they thought was a safe house for resistance fighters. It was actually a safe house for internally displaced people. A father was killed, his wife was wounded, his eldest child was wounded, and the infant child of the family was left unharmed. Elsewhere in the country, in early October, PDF forces launched an assault on a Junta training camp uh, for one of the pro-Junta militias in the Magwe region in central Myanmar. Resistance fighters claimed they caught the camp by surprise in a pre-dawn raid. They fought until they ran out of ammunition and at the end of the fighting, 17 pro-Junta fighters were killed. Around that same time, early October, a large-scale PDF assault was carried out on a fortified Junta police station in the Sagai region, which makes up much of northern Myanmar. Both sides report that the fighting lasted for hours until military airstrikes came in and ended the PDF's assault. Four Junta soldiers were killed in the fighting, and two PDF fighters lost their lives. In mid-October, a military Junta airstrike killed at least 50 civilians in the town of Pakant in northern Myanmar. Witnesses report that three bombs dropped from Junta Air Force jets fell onto a music festival organized by the Kachin Independence Army, which is one of those ethnic separatist groups allied to the PDF. Among the dead were the performing musicians and officers in the Kachin Independence Army. The junta claimed the festival was a legitimate military target and cited recent attacks in the area as a cause for the strike. The Kachin Independence Army does frequently carry out military operations in the area against Junta forces. Moving to western central Myanmar, in mid-October, at least nine resistance fighters were killed near the town of Yinmabin after a pre-dawn Junta operation. All of the fighters uh, that were killed were reportedly in their early 20s. One civilian was also killed. After the raid, the bodies were piled in a house in a village. The house was set on fire, and uh, photos of the charred remains seem to confirm those details. In late October, heavy shelling in multiple airstrikes were reported near the town of Karkreek in southern Myanmar. Junta forces are confirmed to have withdrawn from at least three villages south of the AH-1 highway. It's the Asian Highway 1, a major road that connects Myanmar and Thailand. It's unclear if the junta forces that vacated those villages were driven out by resistance forces and the artillery was launched in response, or if they vacated the villages willingly so as to avoid friendly fire from those airstrikes and that artillery. Finally, we're going to turn to the town of Pauk in western Myanmar. Clashes took place there in late October between the PDF and Junta forces. After those clashes, 
Junta forces found a local teacher loyal to the National Unity Government. They killed him. They decapitated him. They hung his head at the entrance of his school building and then burnt his school to the ground. Since that report has come out, it's drawn condemnation uh, from around the world. A few things on the murder and desecration of that teacher. First is that while war crimes occur in every prolonged conflict, I think it would be a gross reduction to look at that action and say just that, hey, shit happens. I think it's indicative of the hatred that exists on both sides of this conflict that has led to the level of brutality that we see so regularly in this conflict. The pattern of the military in Myanmar to constantly put its boot on the throat of the nation and to time and time again restrict the nation from redefining its future, from planting the seeds for a system that could lead to prolonged prosperity. Every time they get close, and they've gotten close so many times, every time they get close, the military steps in and fucks it up. I think the people have totally lost their patience for it. And the repeated offense has amplified their passion and their hatred for the junta and the people that support the junta. What that leads to is hatred in response. Hatred by the junta and their supporters for the resistance and for the pro-democracy movement. The difference is in how that hatred manifests itself. Yes, the PDF commits drive-by shootings. Yes, they commit assassinations. That might be on the fringe of acceptable tactics in guerrilla warfare. What the junta does is kidnap people of fighting age and they disappear. Kidnap young women who disappear, and I hate to imagine what they went through before they disappeared. And they're the only ones that I see taking civilians and mutilating their corpses after murdering them. And then burning schools down. I don't see that coming from the PDF, and maybe my reporting is, maybe the reports that I'm getting are biased against the junta, but I suspect that there is a disparity in the methods that are being deployed in this conflict. And what's coming from the junta is totally unacceptable terror tactics. What the junta is about to learn very quickly is a lesson that fighting forces across the world have learned in the last 30 or 40 years. And that is, if you want to make an insurgency a thousand times worse, then go ahead and commit atrocities against the local population that you suspect of being sympathetic to the insurgents. Watch the support from the local population explode overnight. Watch them become more and more bold with their strategies. Watch their willingness to fight and die against you skyrocket 
after you pull some shit like that. My one hope is that the PDF doesn't sink to the same lows as the Junta. So what can we look for in the weeks to come? Well, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations met last week to try and address the violence in Myanmar. The junta, as I said, have been barred from participating in ASEAN meetings, uh, and they were not present in the talks last week. So diplomatically, there's even this impasse of, okay, we don't recognize them as the legitimate government. At the same time, they are in control of all of the urban areas in the nation. The only territory that the PDF controls is the countryside of Myanmar. So the grip on power in the country seems at the moment firmly in control of the junta. They have to be engaged with diplomatically at some point if there's ever going to be a diplomatic solution. Maybe it requires some of the more influential, bigger regional neighbors like India or China to come in and, um, and try and address it with the junta. I think you have to bring the national unity government to the table as well. And so far, that meeting seems very, very distant. I mean, the international community has expressed support for the national unity government. I'm not aware that anybody has officially recognized them yet. I could be mistaken, but last I recall, no nation has officially recognized them as the legitimate government in exile. So diplomatically, it seems like we're all over the place. We don't want to acknowledge the junta as the legitimate government, so we will not engage with them. At the same time, we're not acknowledging the national unity government as legitimate, so they're not getting engaged with on any productive level. So the path forward diplomatically has yet to even be defined. Nobody really knows what that looks like. And unfortunately, what that means is that the fighting will continue for the foreseeable future. I will continue to provide updates in the coming reports that you can read at internationalwarreport.com. I'll do an episode on Myanmar again soon. Uh, I won't give you the history all over again. I'll just refer people back to this episode. Uh, that won't be for a little while, though. We have other things to talk about. The situation in Iran is going to be um, on an uh, episode in the near future, as will be the situation in Burkina Faso. So make sure you guys tune in for that. Uh, follow International War Report on Instagram. You can find it just by typing in International War Report. Look for the blue circle with the rings, silver rings in the middle. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at INTL War Report. Go to internationalwarreport.com. Check out the written report. Uh, you can see our visual aids on there as well as on our social media. You can become a member of the show by going to the support us tab at internationalwarreport.com. Uh, if you guys want to reach out, you can, you know, slide into the DMs on, on social media. You can also email internationalwarreport at gmail.com. So if you have any sources that you want to um, point me in the direction of, if you know anybody who has uh, primary knowledge of 
uh, one of the conflicts that I've talked about or any conflict in the world, uh, I'd be happy to hear about it. I'd be happy to hear from you. So don't hesitate to reach out and, uh, and get in touch. Thank you guys so much for listening. Take care.